Chris Apple was also seen, not only for her design work, but as a professional model. She signed with a top agency when she was 97 years old. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Set your calendar if you want to witness a total solar eclipse April 8th, North America. The phenomenon will be visible from the Pacific coast of Mexico across the U.S. from Texas to Maine. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com and listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's a lovely pre-spring morning here on the Augustana College campus, and you're just in time for a conversation with this week's guest, President Amy Novak from St. Ambrose University. I'm Kai Swanson. I hope you'll join us here on Quad Cities Public Radio as we while away the hour, check in on the composer's datebook, and who knows what else. All ahead on Saturday Morning Live, Portions Recorded. Well, friends, here we are. The high is already in the 40s, on our way to maybe the mid-60s. Goodness gracious, and it's not even officially spring yet. But it is a wonderful cause for celebration to welcome Amy Novak as my guest. Thank you for being with us as president of St. Ambrose University. I know more than most how busy presidents are. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. It's a joy to be here this morning, and it is great weather. It so, is. So a lot to celebrate here. Well, and I put in that little nudge about uh, leaf raking because uh, my my spouse has informed me that I'll be raking some leaves that just didn't quite get caught, you know, in the fall. And it's, it's well, it's a bit of a quixotic, uh, you know, endeavor, but we'll try it anyway with the wind. You we'll know, give it, it a goes. shot. You never know. The wind might just take care of it for you. <laughs> see, that's my school of thought. Absolutely. And yeah. that comes from a university president. Right. So I, I mean, it. I've got a lot of kids. They would tell me the same thing, Kai. So, I mean, sometimes the wisdom of our children is... <laughs> More powerful than the wisdom of our ourselves, right? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so, well, you know, it seems to me it's it's surprising. I just I know it's been about three years since you joined us in the Quad Cities, but you have become so engaged with our community. It seems longer than that, but really, it was twenty twenty one that you came to join us. Right, we came here. It was still largely the pandemic. Yes. I mean, things were um, people were in masks. We were being very conscious about transmission of COVID. Right. Um, so that first year was really interesting because as I I'm someone who likes to connect with people. And I sat in my presidential assembly meeting a year after I had started and thought, have I met all these people? Right. And I had, but it had been, you know, behind masks. Right. And so for a year, it was often just not necessarily knowing the full connection of someone. You, you begin to appreciate what you see in someone's face beyond just their eyes, right? Oh. And so yeah. um, so it was um, an interesting first year, but so grateful to be here. And um, our whole family has really appreciated the opportunity and the welcome. 
income um, that we've received here in the Quad Cities. Well, for those who haven't had a chance to get to know you, remind us a little bit about the path. And we're going to go all the way back because you and I share a passion for history, and I'm trying to find out where that happened. But first, where did you grow up? So I grew up in rural South Dakota, Mm -hmm. the community of Mitchell, a town of about Mm -hmm. 12,000, and uh, was really fortunate to have two really entrepreneurial parents. And, um, you know, they sort of were out of the box on a lot of things and started um, uh, natural food stores, started a construction company, were involved in a lumber yard. Um, We did a lot of things uh, sensitive to ecology and to the environment, but uh, also were strong business leaders. We mm-hmm. had a hardware mm-hmm. store. So anyway, I grew up sort of in a in a business world, if you will, but in, in a small place and learned to really value rural America mm-hmm. and uh, certainly appreciated that, but then had the opportunity to sort of stretch my wings and, and leave South Dakota for a time being yeah. and went on to the University of Notre Dame and uh, did our did my bachelor's degree there and met my husband. And well, so. and I want to get to Notre Dame. It is hard to get into Notre Dame, uh, but especially from a place like Mitchell or I would say Rock Island or something like that, unless you've uh, really clearly defined a path for yourself. So I'm wondering, in high school, what were some of the things that made you realize that not just any higher education, but sort of Premier League higher education was going to be in your future? So, you know, we all have these things that happen to us. And I was I was a reasonable athlete. I was a reasonable runner, okay, mm-hmm. in seventh, eighth grade. And uh, and I was, you know, like setting the eighth grade track record and something. And um, was going out for track my eighth grade year and or actually cross country and really injured my Achilles tendon and had to have um, some, you know, had to take the year off. And when I did so, my mom said to me, you know, you got to find something else to do because you're just a little, you know, sitting around at home is not going to work. And she said, I think you need to go out for speech and debate. And I said, I th- I'm not sure I'm smart enough. You know, I gave 120 answers to this, but I did it. <laughs> but see, you were argument. I, yeah, yeah argument, I was right? arguing right there. That's she knew. She knew deeply right there. Um, and so I did it. And um, I will I will tell you that it has fundamentally changed the course of everything I did. And today, I mean, my ability to even just communicate with people, to research information, to synthesize arguments, to consider alternative positions was shaped by what ended up being four strong years of high school, five strong years, actually, because I started in eighth grade, um, of high school forensics. And um, it just sort of set me on a trajectory of curiosity about the world and looking into big questions, you know, and so... uh, What was your favorite event? I did, um, so I did policy debate, um, but I went to nationals in um, foreign extemporaneous speaking. That's what it was called at the time. And so, um, interestingly... The um, one of my chief competitors was actually Stephanie Herseth Sandland, who u- later became the U.S. House member from um, South Dakota, and she is the president of the other Augustana. That's in- right. I was going to say <laughs> I know that name. I know that. Yeah. Name. So Stephanie and I go back a long ways yeah. and uh, went to nationals together. Anyway, so um, it's amazing the network of people that, that you connect with, right? Well, and of course uh, you'd so, want to go to Notre Dame. But so anyway, you know that sort of sets your your yeah. heights in your eyes yeah. on other things. And so um, to be fully transparent here, I actually started my first year at a school on the East Coast Uh and then ended up transferring to Notre Dame my sophomore year and um, finished there and really loved it. So So 
Did you know when you were entering college that history was going to be a major focus, or is that something you discovered through your gen ed kind of start? Yeah, so um, my dad would tell you the real story here was that I was not very good at getting focused. I love political science. I love sociology. I loved economics. Um, and finally, my dad said, you better choose <laughs> choose something. Whatever you choose, it better be what you have the most in. And so if truth be told, I had the most courses at that point in history, in my junior year. And so I ended up with a, um, you know, a degree in history. But I've I love history mm. and I've appreciated that. I love political science. I love sociology. So I spend a lot of time reading in that area today still. And mm -hmm. uh, and it's mm -hmm. shaped me, you know, yeah. and so um, had a chance to do undergraduate thesis work and um, have really valued that. What was the area of history that, that you found most engaging? Uh, for me, I mean, just being in the early 80s, it was Russian history, because there was a lot of opportunities yeah, to study yeah. that then. Right, right. What, what, what caught your fancy? So um, this may or may not be a reflection of where I grew up, but I did my undergraduate thesis on American Indian history. Yeah, sure. And sure. so, you know, having grown up in South Dakota, I was just really trying to figure out what was going on here, and um, actually did it on the ghost dance, and sort of the history of the ghost dance, and the tragedy that occurred yeah. there um, as it related to that. So that was an area of interest. The other area that I have was called cultivating then too was also the impact of catholic nuns mm -hmm. on sort of the so sort of women in history but looking specifically at the role of of catholic nuns in the formation of hospital healthcare educational institutions nonprofits and really their very inc incredible impact mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. on on the social systems of America. Yeah. So. Well, you don't have to sell me on that. In my lifetime, some of the most impactful members of campus ministries at Augustana have been nuns. Right. We had a long relationship with the Benedictine order right. that's at St. Mary. Mm -hmm. And one in particular, I don't want to uh, I don't want to denigrate anybody whose name I don't mention, but uh, Sister Marilyn Ring, OSB. Mm -hmm. She was amazing. Mm -hmm. And the programs she put together for students were phenomenal. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, don't have to sell me on that. That's quite clear, even at a Lutheran college. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I attribute some of my, what I would say, sense of social justice or sense of responsibility to the common good to a Catholic sister I had in, in sixth grade who was all of about five foot, if that, mm. and Sister Sabina Joyce. She passed away two years ago at the, at 102. Mm. And she was um, a firebrand. She just had this bold personality about her despite her size. And she had been in, in Selma and she was out in D.C. Wow. Lobby, lobbying for immigrants. And I very naively, Kai, said to her in sixth grade, um, Sister we were studying U.S. civil rights history at the time. And I said, Sister, um, when are we going to figure this race thing out and, mm. and just be mm. able to move, move forward, right? And she put her hands on my shoulder and almost like in a marked way said, that will be the work of your lifetime. And it has sat with me for my career. Right. And you know, so I lean heavily into the question of even today in higher ed, how do we open doors of access? How do we ensure affordability for first generation, low income students on the margins? Um, I'm keenly sensitive to, I think, what is our obligation to walk alongside students coming from those kinds of backgrounds to ensure that higher ed is a pathway for wow. them. What so, a powerful, powerful memory. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's really important 
planted itself in yeah, my heart. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I, I I'm not going to go off on a tangent here, but I I, I get a little bit of a, a chill when I think, uh, are we taking that opportunity for that mentorship moment around civil rights away from some of our students today in states mm-hmm. where you're not allowed to teach about those civil rights uh, legislative uh, victories of the mm-hmm. 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just noticing, and I'm, I'm confident it's not going to go anywhere, but there is that sector in the Iowa legislature that wants fifth graders to memorize common sense by Tom and pa- Thomas Paine mm-hmm. rather than study about Selma. So when mm-hmm. you make a reference about a brave nun marching in Selma, they wouldn't have any idea what that significance right right right, right. yeah something that i'm just concerned about as a former history major now you get through saint ambrose and as many of us do you find a life partner (laughs) during that undergrad uh so what was your spouse's uh trajectory was he also in history or no he's not he's an aerospace engineer by (sighs) undergraduate training but then here's the here's the you know he's um He's just a delightful partner and and so talented in so many ways. So he then went on to get his doctorate in English. So if you can imagine a brain that can operate in yep. both sides, right? Yep. So he he diagrams philosophy and he diagrams English like an engineer would, but making it very explicable to students. So he teaches for us in the um, philosophy department now at St. Ambrose and um, contributes, loves teaching, also uh, works for Genesis Health as a hospice chaplain as well. So Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then, well, after South Bend, right. uh, your adventures were just getting started, right? Right, right. Because he was... Um, there on an ROTC scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so we had the very good fortune of um, moving a number of times over the next 10 years. And um, and he landed in Germany um, eventually as a chief speech writer for the four-star that was overseeing the U.S. forces in Europe and Turkey at the start of the second Iraq war. Mm. And... Um, Ended up being uh, medically retired. He was sent back to the States, and we knew at that juncture that his career in the military was not going to be able to continue Mm. um, and had just sustained some injuries that were going to be, you know, altering the course of his ability to continue in that work. So I brought six kids home with me at that time from Germany and um, was sitting in my parents' kitchen and said, I got to figure out how to, you know, find a job because at that time it was clear that he might not be able to continue working. And I mean, we had a lot of children. So um, there was an opening at the college in my hometown at Dakota Wesleyan University Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. a um, grant writer. It was a part-time position. It paid about $24,000 a year. And I said, well, I'm a, a decent writer. And and over the time of our moves, I had done a variety of things. I had, you know, worked with mentally ill women and new immigrant populations. I had been in computer um, and business process reengineering, commodities. I mean, it was a gamut of things when you're moving every sure. 18 months, right? Sure. So um, so anyway, I thought, well, I, I think I can write grants. So, um, so fortunate to be 10 years later serving as their president. Mm. And so it was a really wonderful opportunity for me to step into a career in higher ed that has landed me in places I wouldn't have ever imagined sure. and intersecting with really great people who of care course. deeply about the world and, and we're, students. We're going to talk a lot about that. But first, I mean, thank you and your family for your service. Uh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it was, um, you know, it was, 
an important and integral part of our life. Of course. Um, of course. And we've taken lessons from that and sure. met people in those, you know, in those places and spaces. But I will say that back. the other thing you mentioned, that there's something about the higher education ecosystem where if you're open to it, if you can maintain curiosity, there's no pursuit like it because you get to meet young people who are brilliant. You get to meet people at all stages in their professional lives, whether they're working in dining services or in the philosophy department, who are just so fascinating, so intriguing. And because they're likewise drawn to this notion that I don't know it all, I better keep learning. And yeah. that's a fascinating thing. Yeah, I think we have the best job ever. I, I, you <laughs> know, the... <laughs> we'll talk about this in a moment. I like my job better than your job. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying. I can saying, be a I, corporal. I can kind of yeah, hang yeah, out. Yeah, I understand it. But I, I think there is a day, you know, you just look every day at that opportunity for intersection. Sure. Right? Absolutely. And, and connection. And connection. And connection. Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. we're going to make a connection right now because you have already mentioned some time in Europe. And I hope at least once you got a chance to go down to Salzburg. And I'll let our friends from Composer's Datebook unpack that statement. This is the Composer's Datebook for March 2nd. I'm John Burge. On today's date in 1965, the now classic and mega-iconic musical film The Sound of Music officially debuted at the Rivoli Theater at Broadway and 49th Street in New York City. Since we at Composer's Datebook are notorious for mentioning little-known facts, let us state for the record that the first test audiences to see The Sound of Music did so in flyover country, first in Minneapolis and subsequently in Tulsa, about a month before the film's New York debut. Midwestern audiences were ecstatic, and director Robert Wise knew he'd have a hit on his hands when his film, starring Julie Andrews, opened on Broadway, not far from where the original stage version, starring Mary Martin, debuted back in 1959. The 1965 New York Times film review was a little snarky. What else is new? It began by referring to, quote, the perceptible weakness of its quaintly old-fashioned book, while grudgingly admiring the generally melodic felicity of the Richard Rodgers Oscar Hammerstein score, and ended by opining, business-wise, Mr. Wise is no fool. No fool indeed. In 1966, Wise's film won five Oscars and displaced Gone with the Wind as the highest grossing film of all time. Composer's Daybook is produced by APM, American Public Media, in collaboration with the American Composers Forum, reminding you that all music was once new. Support for Composer's Datebook on WVIK comes from the Quad City Symphony Orchestra, where access meets inspiration. The QCSO seeks to inspire, entertain, and engage the entire Quad Cities through music, music education, and cultural leadership. Learn more at qcso.org. And hold that thought, friends, while I tell you that support for WVIK also comes from the Regional Development Authority, distributing funds from the Rhythm City Casino Resort to help make the Quad Cities a more vibrant and inclusive community. And you can 
can learn more at rdauthority.org. My guest this week is Dr. Amy Novak, president of St. Ambrose University, and I'm so thrilled to have you here, but also because one of the things I learned is we mentioned the Quad City Symphony, and this is a Masterworks weekend. They're doing uh, Gabriel Fauré's Requiem, but the first half of the program is this delightful charcuterie board of Bach. It's just, it's going to be amazing. But as we were chatting, uh, you and I have a favorite composer in common, Michael Abels. Tell me a little bit about, because, well, tell me why that's exciting for you. <laughs> well, I've been recently just reading about this, the opera Omar, mm-hmm. and um, he was obviously instrumental in composing that. And yep. this is just a really powerful narrative for us, I think, from a historical perspective, mm-hmm. to understand this Muslim slave who comes to America mm-hmm. and the narrative that's uncovered. And then he and, and Rihanna Giddens go to work on this and create this opera. And so for this to be able to, you know, be here in the Quad Cities next year is just a really exciting opportunity. And that's a great partnership that goes back to second grade between Michael Abels and Mark Russell Smith. That's when they met. Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why we've had him here a couple of times. And so very grateful to the symphony. If you don't have your tickets yet for tonight at uh, 7.30 at the Adler, tomorrow at 2 p.m. at Centennial Hall, go to qcso.org and make sure that you get those tickets. But... So we were talking just a minute ago about how another thing you and I share is we we tend to be vocal in this expression of gratitude for the places that we've found ourselves, right? And one of the things I wanted to to chat with you about is that that whole notion of gratitude because it's I've seen it in your in your public pronouncements. I I see it reflected through people who you work with mm-hmm. um because I aver that it is um a, a key competitive advantage mm-hmm. uh, as a person progresses professionally is to maintain that attitude of gratitude. But where did it start for you? Because it, I see it. Where were the roots of that for you? I want to give a lot of credit, I think, to grandparents and to parents as well, who just sort of framed life that way. You know, like I recall my dad saying every morning we got up, he had this big good morning, whether we were ready for that level of good morning sure, or not. Sure. And then he would go on to say all the things he was grateful for that morning, mm, right? Mm, and so mm, I think when mm. you have the privilege of sort of walking alongside a parent who just approaches life from that lens, what a joy, mm. right? And so the other thing I think is when you've had encounters in your own life where there might have been periods of struggle or moments where you weren't sure someone was going to survive something, you approach life differently and mm-hmm. you don't take for granted anyone. And I think when you just are able to look through the lenses we can look through and say, what is it that I can learn from you? Um, mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. a what a privileged place that is to be in that moment mm. of encounter. And it's so enriching, right? At the end of the day, it's so enriching um, to be able to sort of lead from that space yeah, and also to learn from that space. Well, Milton actually uses the word reverence, Hmm. uh, and it's one of my favorite quotes. He says that gratitude bestows reverence. And like you said, if you can look through that lens, every epiphany is something special, Mm -hmm. no matter how potentially commonplace. He says, uh, transcendent moments of awe will change forever how we experience life and the world. And I, I love that. I also like the fact that you mentioned that about your grandparents. 
My uh, paternal grandfather, his mother was wid- uh, was uh, orphaned at the age of about 14 in mm-hmm. Sweden and refused to go to the poorhouse and mm-hmm. worked her way over here. And then he had, my grandfather, two older siblings who did not survive childhood. This is at the end of the 1800s, sure, right? Sure, And he always had that sort of special gratitude. And and I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think mm-hmm. we, we the, some of that seeps through the generations. Yeah, it does. You know, I think about, too... Um, from an educational standpoint, I did my doctoral work at Creighton. Yeah. And as a Jesuit institution, one of the practices they have is sort of this um, practice of prayer on a nightly basis in mm-hmm. which one of the act, there's five steps to this, but one of the steps is a recollection of gratitude. Yeah. And when you start to make that a habit, right, every day just thinking about what, even if it was a ter- terribly difficult day, and but you still can say, what were the things that... Um, that Im- that were positive, that yeah. impacted me, or yeah. even it wasn't a positive encounter, you learned from, you took something from that. Um, so that's shaped a lot of, I think, my own personal life and my own personal journey is just yeah. looking for those moments. I'm still learning. Uh, I think in, all of us are. <laughs> in, my, in my prayer life, for a long time, I would lift up the names of people, because you mentioned the Jesuits. I, I like the, uh, the, the Benedictine approach, maybe because of Sister Marilyn and sure, others, where sure. it's about that uh, Lectio Divina and that right. sort of thing. But I, like others, I'll, I'll name a bunch of names of my grandkids and siblings and formerly my parents while they were still living. And, right. And then I, over time, it dawns on me that there, there's a bit of hubris there that, I mean, uh, if I really am leaving it up to this, uh, this, this power that I don't understand, mm-hmm. I shouldn't be telling that power what to do. So I've settled on, I, I name all the names, but I just say thanks. Yeah. Thanks that they're there. Right. You right. Know? And I right. get to share a little bit of oxygen with them. Love it. Yeah, it's a, but to take that to the workplace, one of the problems is to, for being a leader like you are is um, you don't often encounter uh, colleagues who are coming at you from a place of gratitude <laughs> because you're the fixer, right? Right. So right. how do you, as a leader, and I'm always looking for leadership tips, but how do you, as a leader, meet um, an honest and and an authentic need for I need some resolution I need I need help and this kind of thing with that attitude of, of a more grateful heart yeah I think sometimes we when we think of gratitude that we maybe mistakenly align it always with joy or optimism right. or hope right and I think from a leadership lens we when I think of gratitude I think about the opportunity of encounter. Mm. So when that person is coming in, usually with a concern, right? (laughs) Not always, but Mm. many times with a concern. What is it that I can learn from in that encounter? And I think that is also a moment of gratitude for us as leaders, because if we don't know sometimes what's happening, perhaps in different parts of our organization, we also can't lift it up, build it and address things, right? So I try and see those intersections as kind of grace-filled moments, it is also very common for me in those conversations to just begin to get to know that person differently. And so typically, even if they're in disagreement with me, we can find a space of common ground. And it is from that space of common ground that we can usually resolve our difference or understand one another differently and appreciate the fact that we might not be able to fully agree, or at least be open to a new perspective. And I'm I'm very open to a new perspective. I mean, I think doing this now, you know, this is my 13th year as a president or 12, 12 and a half years as president. 
of an institution, um, there's a lot we don't know as leaders. Yeah. And yeah. so this is humble work. And we need to enter each day in that space of what can I learn from this team that helps me then reshape the vision, recraft what we're going to do. But this is a joint project. Yeah. Higher ed is not the project of the president. Higher ed is the project of all of us co-creating a strong future. Right. And I see there again that theme of curiosity. So mm -hmm. I think it might be fruitful maybe on a, a future visit where we'll link curiosity with gratitude. But I'm something of a historian for this institution. And there was a president who served uh, from 1935 to 62 in a very different environment, right? And he once said years into his retirement to one of his successors, uh, being a president takes all a person has. But I don't think that's current anymore. I think that might have been a byproduct from a patriarchal, matriarchal sort of view towards leadership. And I don't, I don't know how any president. And may, I wonder if that's one of the reasons presidencies are, have gotten so short. We've been fortunate in the Quad Cities that both Ambrose and Augustana have had long-serving presidents. So I'm sure you've been told, as I've told my boss, you're here for 20 years, minimum. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what we need. <laughs> there might be moments some of my community are like, "Whoo, really, Amy?" <laughs> but I mean. Uh, it's you 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 tend to have you, you what you just described is a balance that I don't think would have occurred to a college or university president sixty years ago. I think that's probably true. I I do find it troubling that presidents are lasting. And the longevity is really shrinking. I think the most recent data is below five years that's right. now. I just saw and that. the the problem with that, as you can appreciate, is that's barely one student cycle, right? You know, they start as a first year and they're graduating in four years, and then that's so. So the changes that we're trying to implement in higher ed often take a while for us to get off the ground. And so if we don't, and and we have to invest in our culture, right? right? We have to understand that culture. We have to understand the gifts of that culture. We have to appreciate um, the strengths. We have to understand where there might be gaps. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't happen overnight. So to your point, I think there's, there's a need for balance. Um, we have to recognize it's not all us. Yeah. Um, but I do worry Kai, about the turnover yeah. and what that does ultimately to a university um, that's trying to move things forward. Right. And because, and, and I wonder about this a lot. I don't know what the future is going to hold. It was often said that your college or university in a given community will be among the oldest institutions in that community you'll find. I think that's true for Ambrose mm -hmm. in, in Davenport, Augustana and Rock Island. But when you get to that level of churn, there's and, – and I don't know yet whether that is inherently a good or bad thing. My suspicion is it's not a good thing to have that level of churn. Right. Because culture needs – uh, some stewardship. Right. right. And I think some sustainability. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so yeah, I think, I don't know that we all have to last 20 years or 25 <laughs> years, but I do think there's probably a, you know, a 10 to 12 year or 10 to 15 year uh, range that could be really helpful yeah. for the work that we're doing. Yeah. So, and it builds connection with alumni. It builds connections with, um, you know, the community that we're located in. So, yeah, there's all those pieces. What gives me hope is that you and President Talentino are both very engaged in a lot of things, uh, both within this community, in the broader 
uh, ecosystem of higher ed uh, that gives me some hope that hopefully that'll sustain you and, and keep you going. Because as you and I have said, the person who does uh, things at St. Ambrose, similar to what I do at Augustana, we have a professional group right. that we run away to about once a year. And I will say Jan and I talk to each other quite a bit right. and uh, just sometimes need to get away for lunch or something yeah, like that. Which so is great. <laughs> make sure that stays part of your... Absolutely. That's Absolutely. right. That's right. Okay. So I, I turn things around a little bit. I'm going to bring back that other lens, but we were talking about um, the idea of going on in your education and you chose for graduate work economics. Mm-hmm. So where did you see, I often think that economics are, and history are inextricably linked, but what was it that, that fired your curiosity enough to make you want to go into graduate study in econ? Yeah, I think that I had always had a little bit of interest in understanding why economics, frankly, shaped history, right? And so when you look at the history of our world, even the history of the last, you know, 100 years, Mm -hmm. it has been largely linked to economics and arguably um, sociology and perhaps religion. You know, there could be a number of things we could we could layer in there. But um, I think to better understand history, I understood that I needed to better understand economics. Hmm. The other piece I would say is that um, my focus was really in social and applied economics. And so there was an interest there, probably going back to this question laid on by Sister Sabina Joyce, which was, how do you use the systems that we have? to continue to strengthen, um, you know, human flourishing? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, how do we apply these models of economics? And are there new models of economics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Are some of the frameworks that we've been traditionally reliant upon perhaps outdated in this environment that we're in today, or maybe not fully explaining the experiences that we are undertaking today. So as I've journeyed from history and economics and even, you know, into the work that I did at Creighton, um, I began to really see that it's, we we can't be siloed in our disciplinary lens, right? That, that we're, we're better off being informed in a myriad of ways by the intersection of disciplines. And um, so this was an opportunity for me to sort of broaden that understanding of history to now include this lens of economics. That sounds like a great ad for the liberal arts. <laughs> I try and make that case to parents all the time, right? Like, well, uh, you know, but one of the one of the challenges, Kai, is that, um, and, and I've sat with countless business leaders here in the Quad Cities who say we need, you know, they'll call them human skills or soft skills, the communication skills, synthesizing data, ability to look contextually at something. Um, and yet the way AI reads resumes today, we we don't necessarily see those skills bubbling up mm-hmm, and giving mm-hmm. and being given value by our employers right mm-hmm. so on the one hand they say it on the other hand the way that we built models of quickly parsing through countless resumes doesn't favor the amplification of those skills like I would like, you know, and so I try and bring that to the attention of our employers, because I think ultimately, the person who can communicate well, who can delve into a deep question, who can research something, who has a degree of information literacy, who appreciates a context and cultural context that might be shaping something within their organization will last much longer there. Sure. 
And I think that's why what, there was a long period of time where those big uh, eight accounting firms, the really big ones, were all headed by people who went to liberal arts colleges. Yeah. You know, my right. first My first um, internship in college, and then I had a job offer there as well, was with Cargill Corporation. Mm, yeah. And, okay, so I didn't have any background in commodities. And I was with a group of eight people who were hired, um, and they were an art history major, a history major, um, a sociologist, a theology major, and someone who's in music and, and performing arts. I mean, and yet we all went on to learn about buying and selling commodities and trading commodities and buying and selling cattle and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and I think it, I think we missed we've missed something as we've honed in. That's not to d- diminish the value of studying business or engineering or you know computer science, but I think the value of our liberal arts traditions like Augustana and St. Ambrose is that we're going to, we're going to do the both and. Right. We're going to get those skills plus ensure that we have an understanding of the big questions of our world and how to approach those um, with a lens that makes sense. I'm always been, I'm impressed by your use of the phrase both and because it's something that we've always tried to gravitate towards and my my many friends who are part of the St. Ambrose community likewise it's that uh, our society just like AI shortcuts our society wants us to shortcut to either or and and make it simple and and less fraught uh, but that is usually to the great disadvantage of society as a whole. So again, I come back to this notion of both and, I think, requires gratitude, right? It, it mm-hmm. requires gratitude for difference and curiosity mm-hmm. about what the uh, and might be uh, mm-hmm. while holding to the first part of the equation. So I'm very impressed by you working that into conversation. I would say that I think the either or argument is maybe easier and safer and the both and argument is requires curiosity and a comfort level with ambiguity and when we talk about gratitude the surprise of what we discover in the ambiguity or in the liminality mm. is powerful absolutely Well, there's only one person I would turn to in a moment like this for greater uh, elucidation in what we're talking about. And on a day like today with the high getting near 60, well, first let me thank my guest, uh, (laughs) Dr. Amy (laughs) Novak, president of St. Ambrose. I don't say that often enough, and I'm very grateful to these guests. But let's bring another voice to the conversation, this in the form of Bob Marley and his classic, Give Thanks and Praises. Thanks and praises to the most high. Give thanks and praises so high. He will not deceive us, my brethren. He will only Known to be the 
Give thanks and praises a little bit of Bob Marley as we talk about the theme of gratitude with my guest, Amy Novak, president of St. Ambrose University. And let me just express some of that gratitude now. Thanks for being here today. Oh, it's a joy. Thank you for inviting me. Well, and thanks for saving me from having to rake those leaves that will be in my future, regardless of how much I delay. But we're going all over the map here. And um, that's part of what I'd like to, to do next. I mean, you do a lot of traveling as a college or university president. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and some of it is for your own learning and edification and professional development. Some of it is for uh, nurturing relationships for the institution. Um, as a president, what's been one of the more fun or memorable journeys that you've made? Well, I think last summer we took our alumni group from St. Ambrose over to um Italy, yeah. and we were joined by um, Father Bud Grant, oh, who's you know yeah, from yeah, the Academy yeah. of St. Ambrose, a study for St. Ambrose of Milan, and Dr. Ethan Ganaway, who those two sort of spearhead the academy work. And what a joy to be able to journey alongside our um, faculty and our staff, and as well a number of our alumni who are exploring the pathway of St. Ambrose. Mm. And so on top of it being Italy and great food and amazing museums and terrific history, um, we got a we got a spiritual journey alongside that. Well, and that of course takes you to Milan. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I what I know, what little I know about Ambrose the person is very, very captivating. But what was it about bringing 
the group to Milan that connects that story more viscerally. Yeah, so, you know, Ambrose is is perhaps one of the least understood doctors of the Catholic Church. And so um, there, there were four early doctors of the church, Augustine, Gregory, Jerome. Um, but Ambrose, people haven't read about him. Mm. And yet he's really... He's cool. I mean, there's some things there that I think are pretty um, powerful. For example, um, he he wasn't necessarily raised as a Christian. He's invited to be bishop. He's a he's a uh, pol- political scientist and a scholar, and you know he's really on track to be a strong leader within within sort of Roman society. And they say, you know, come on, you want to you want to be a bishop, and he runs away. And they track him down, and eight days later, he becomes bishop. Now, mind you, this is the fastest the Catholic Church has ever done anything. I mean, to go from non-Christian to bishop in eight days is a remarkable statement. But beyond that, he really speaks out on issues of wealth and equality. He, you know, sells gold-plated communion vessels in an effort to free barbarians and slaves. There's some narrative there that I think in our world today— matters. Mm -hmm. And so I think making the connection from this is the saint to this is a university that values some of these very principles Mm -hmm. that in 380 AD were being worked upon as, you know, significant community conversations. um, It's important for us to connect to that history. And so it was just a delight to be able to do that. The other thing I would say is that I didn't realize this, but some, when you get to the basilica that has the you know, uh, St. Ambrose of Milan, it is architecturally similar to some things that we have on our campus. And so being able to sort of um, draw those parallels together was really beautiful. Sure. Well, and I didn't know that about the doctors of the church. Yeah. Uh, I know a little bit about Augustine because that's where the, that was the school that Luther came out of. Sure, uh, sure. And he also has one of my favorite quotes, I think attributed to Augustine, when you sing, you pray twice. Right. And I always right. like that one about him. <laughs> but I want to come back to an earlier theme. You as an historian, as uh, an economist, uh, sociologist, political scientist, you look at how grand things are really behind where the world has been pushed, right? And yet you balance that, and we all do if you're in education, with reminding our younger scholars that what they do really matters, that Mm -hmm. they're not just brought up in a sweep of history or economic movements or things like that and finding that place, that sweet spot. So you talked about communicating with employers, which all college and university uh, (laughs) presidents do, bless you. Uh, But how do you communicate that with the prospective parents, their family, uh, prospective students and their families, but also with your current students and say, yeah, it is true that economics shaped a lot of the 20th century, but that does not absolve you from responsibility. Uh, uh, What lens do you use for that? So we've recently redone our institutional mission, vision, and values, Mm -hmm. and um, the faculty are We'll vote on it, and they've sort of the leadership said it's a it's a go. They've, we've had a very series, a, a strong series of conversations, and those values are courage, wisdoms, justice, and service. And so when I talk with our parents, and I just met with groups of our scholar students um, early in February, I I shared with them when we talk about the value of courage, right? Whether it's studying economics or sociology, or you decide you want to go into the healthcare field, or you want to be a teacher. Knowing this background is important context, but it is the courage to act Mm. on what we know that differentiates you in the world. Mm -hmm. And so when we can study the life of St. Ambrose of Milan and understand 
he acted with courage, yeah. right? Martin Luther acted with courage. We can walk around this community and see people who have acted with courage. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to put it on social media. It's far more challenging to do it. Right. And so we hope our education is about doing it. And so I think that's one of the things we focus on. We focus on understanding that knowledge without an appropriate ethical compass or moral compass can kind of lead us in all sorts of ways. So how do we shape that knowledge to really act wisely in mm -hmm. the world? And then similarly, I think we are called as higher education leaders to act with justice, mm -hmm. to understand from a place of humility who it is our neighbor really is, mm -hmm. and how are we called to walk alongside them in solidarity and service. Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned courage. Um, I, I think that would be, our theme today has been sort of gratitude, but I think another theme uh, would actually be fear, because courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the strategy one applies to walk through fear. Right. Uh, and sometimes there's no strategy at all. You just, <laughs> Until you think about it later, you just right. do it, right? right? But I think that would be a very fruitful area to think about. It wouldn't make a good <laughs> slogan for anything. Courage is much better. <laughs> but well, in terms of personal, uh, just our, our own lives, understanding fear is key. I think a lot of what we have happening in the world today is because of fear. And so what's our choice to sit there in fear and to create, you know, an anxiety, mm -hmm. or can we build up enough courage, right? To be able to say, let's explore this from another angle, yeah. or let's take this on with the courage and conviction to advocate for someone who needs a voice. So I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that hope and optimism are good things, right? We really have to move from hope and optimism to courage. Yeah, and yeah. that doesn't negate fear, but it gives us the confidence to act right. um, in a new way right. or to say things that we think are important. Well, I'm about to ask you a very, very unfair question because I know college and university presidents don't get a lot of free time and have to, if they're reading, they're reading a lot of stuff about their institution, higher ed, all kinds of trends. Do you get any time for fiction? And if so, what's some recent fiction you've had a chance yeah, to Yeah, I, I, I'm a real reader. So I read across a lot of different things. Um, I just finished The Middle Kingdom, which is not nonfiction. We have a daughter studying in Prague. And so The Middle Kingdoms is a beautiful story of the history of uh, sort of Central Europe, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. normally we read about Western Europe, and, yeah. you know, nope. world wars <laughs> and things like this. So this was super helpful. But fiction wise, um, <laughs> I read James McBride's book, um, The, the Gro Heaven and Earth Grocery, grocery store? store, and I loved it. I'm so happy I, to hear that. I, yeah, I was really moved by, A, his writing is phenomenal, but B, the story, you know, in, in Pennsylvania and this narrative between the African-American and the Jewish community, just really a powerful story of of encounter, of courage, of grace. Um, there's a lot in that. We have a so. little club here at Augie, and yeah. that's what we chose for our April. Oh, fantastic. So You're I'm still love finishing it. the March book, of course. Yeah, you're going to love it. always going to cram. Yeah, <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> no, no. But I'm, did you read uh, Deacon King Kong by any chance? No, I didn't. If you get a chance. Okay. Uh, we had this book show here, Scribbles, uh, that Don hosted sure. with Roald Tweet, yeah. who both legends uh, around these parts. And that was one of the last books that the 
the two of them discussed together before Dr. Tweet passed away. And I read it and, oh, it's just so good. I hope you read that one too. I'll put it on the list. And Um, then, well, be assured, I I am, that is my go to activity at about 11 o'clock at night when I just need to sort of decompress. Um, And so I'm on. I just, I just read. Okay, my litmus test, though, for this Middle Kingdom that you read. Yeah, yes. Does it treat the defenestration of Prague, which is one of my favorite episodes in all of history? It's good. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we have a son who's 18, and he he reads way more history than I do. And um, he, he gave the tour guide a run for the money because he led with some questions around that. And I think... So were you in Hanakani and yeah. talking about the room where they... Threw- <laughs> I think the guy wasn't ready for the level that we came in with. So the poor tour guide, I think, was like, wait a second, what are we doing here? So anyway, oh, yeah. but it was it was a delight, so... Well, and I love that. If you haven't looked up that story, friends, you should. But I really am intrigued by those houses, uh, Lobkowitz, Lichnowski, because they're part of that adventure. And then later in Beethoven's life, those two houses make a bet against each other about Beethoven, which I think is just fascinating stuff. So what are we going to talk about next? My goodness, we've we've kind of exhausted all sorts of fields of inquiry, but I know there's a, no, a dozen more that we should be talking about. What's something you're looking into in terms of a disciplinary uh, pursuit beyond history and economics? Though? I do a lot of reading in the natural sciences. Do and you? so uh, a lot about nature. What can that explain to us as we think about patterns in nature? And can that inform organizations? Um, and so I took my part of my faculty on a journey through the life of the eel, um, which changes, it goes through four different metamorphoses as a way to understand change. And, you know, so how do we leverage nature a little bit? Um, I think there are countless lessons for us to be gratified by and also learn from. And this morning I was just reading a beautiful reflection on the dandelion. And the reflection was, well, first of all, all these things that sort of spread up yellow for Scythia and all things yellow in this time of spring. But the dandelion just, it doesn't go away. So despite all of our best efforts, what does that tell us about the dandelion, right? And so, you know, sometimes there's those things that maybe we think are clogs in the road or, you know, things that we need to, to eradicate. But maybe there's a bigger lesson there. There is a great quote, and now I'm blanking on who said it, but it was something along the lines of, every weed is beautiful as a flower once you get to know it. Yeah, <laughs> I think that this our author would agree with that. Yeah, so. that's great. But for now, I can't believe it. I knew this was going to happen. The hour is coming to an end. And all I can say is thank you, with or without the theme of gratitude, to my guest, Dr. Amy Novak, president of St. Ambrose University. Thanks for taking the time to be with us this morning. Kai, it's been a joy. And thank you for the opportunity to just have this dialogue. Oh, it's, been, it's been rich and rewarding. Well, and I know people might be listening, but I mean, we're just having too much fun. <laughs> we're, we're having a good time. <laughs> we're having a good time. <laughs> so. And that's going to do it for now, friends. Again, thanks to my guest, Dr. Amy Novak. We would invite you to join us next week when our guest will be Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts. And you're going to hear that at WVIK 90.3 FM and HD in Rock Island and at 95.9 FM K240DZ in Dubuque. Now, a couple of words on our forecast. Sunny skies today with a high up in the mid-60s. It's going to be very breezy, in fact, gusty today and tonight. Into tomorrow, sunny skies, still very windy, but the high near 75 degrees. I love it. 
Rain is likely going into Monday, but that's going to clear up. And by Tuesday, mostly sunny skies with a high near 57 degrees. The week's going to be mostly nice. A chance of rain Thursday uh, Thursday night, but then 50% chance of rain Friday with mostly cloudy skies and a high near 51. Now, friends, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that support for WVIK comes from the Joyce and Tony Singh Family Foundation and the... Uh, It's fostering a diverse Quad Cities that is dedicated to reconciliation, peace, and inclusiveness. And we can all learn more at the SingFamilyFoundation.org. Again, Quad City Symphony tonight at 7.30, tomorrow at 2. And then if you're free on Monday at 7 p.m., come hear Emerson Sykes from the ACLU presenting the 2024 Curtis Lecture in Public Affairs at Augustana College. That'll be at Wallenberg Hall, 7 o'clock Monday. Admission is free. Thanks, friends, for joining us.